you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter number 32. I am pleased to resume our study in the book of Exodus after an extended break for the Christmas season and a brief New Year series. It's uh, good to be back doing systematic exposition. It's where I'm comfortable and, uh, and, and the way I think God's people are best served. So we'll be back in Exodus now for the next uh, several weeks. Exodus 32 is going to be our text. This is a passage that's going to be familiar to some of you. This is the golden calf incident in Israel's early history. There are a couple of themes that feature prominently here in Exodus 32. Naturally, idolatry is a major concern of the passage, and it should be a major concern for us as well. We're going to talk through that extensively this morning. And then the prayer of Moses on behalf of the people is really a, a model for how we might pray on behalf of our brothers and sisters that the strongholds of idolatry would be broken down in their life, that they might have freedom, and that God might receive all of the glory and the praise that his people might muster. Exodus 32, if you found your way there in your copy of God's Word, let's stand together as we read God's holy word. Exodus 32, beginning in verse 1. The Bible says, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make us a God who will go before us, because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Then Aaron replied to them, take off the gold rings that are on the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them back to Aaron. He took the gold from their hands, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, this is your God, who brought you up from the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. Then he made an announcement, there'll be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. Early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, then got up to play. The Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once for your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. Notice how God speaks here. They're Moses' people now. They're behaving like Moses' people, not like God's people. God lets Moses have them, at least temporarily. In verse 8, the Bible says, they have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They made for themselves an image of a calf. They've bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I've seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses interceded with the Lord his God. Lord, why does your anger burn against your people you brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and a strong hand? Why should the Egyptians say he brought them out with an evil intent to kill them in the mountains and wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your great anger and relent concerning this disaster planned for your people. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. You swore to them by your very self and declared, I will make your offspring as numerous as the stars of the sky and will give your offspring all this land that I have promised, and they will inherit it forever. So the Lord relented concerning the disaster he said he would bring on his people. Then Moses turned and went down the mountain with two tablets of testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, inscribed front and back. 
The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the sound of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, There is a sound of war in the camp. But Moses replied, It's not the sound of a victory cry, nor the sound of a cry of defeat. I hear the sound of singing. And as he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged and threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. Then he took the calf they had made, burned it up, ground it to powder. And he scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. Moses asked Aaron, what did these people do to you that you've led them into such a grave sin? Don't be enraged, my Lord, Aaron replied. You yourself know that the people are intent on evil. They said to me, make us a God who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I said to them, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me. When I threw it into the fire, out came this calf. (laughs) Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control, resulting in weakness before their enemies. Moses stood at the camp's entrance and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the Levites gathered around him. He told them, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man fasten his sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from entrance to entrance, and each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. The Levites did as Moses commanded, and about 3,000 fell dead that day among the people. Afterward, Moses said, Today you've been dedicated to the Lord, since each man went against his son and his brother. Therefore, you've brought a blessing on yourselves today. The following day, Moses said to the people, You've committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord, perhaps I'll be able to atone for your sin. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves. Now if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. The Lord replied to Moses, I will erase whoever has sinned against me from my book. Now go, lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf Aaron had made. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. Let's take a moment here at the front end of our dealing with this passage to talk about idolatry, the, the problem of idolatry and, and really identifying idolatry because I think we have the ability to convince ourselves that this is a pre-resurrection issue, not so much a problem for us in the Western world where not many statues or idols or structures exist to which we might bow and pay worship. It is my contention that idolatry is every much, every bit the issue in the Western world as it is in the Eastern world. Only in the Western world, we have not established statues or places to which we bow and worship. We have established statues or idols in our hearts to which we worship or pay our tribute. Idolatry is uh, simply defined to love something or someone in a way that is out of order, which 
militates against the idea that idolatry is always the product of something that is bad. In the text, the golden calf is inherently bad. It is bad because it is built to be worshipped in the place of the one true and living God. But in our system, more times than not, it's something that is on some level good that is worshipped out of order or loved in a way that's out of order. Let me give you an example. I often run into cases with young adults especially, but it can be people of virtually any age. It could be teenagers. It can even be much older adults. Coming out of sinful backgrounds, trying to make a break with the past and walk with Jesus, who feel this insatiable need to always be in a relationship with a member of the opposite sex. You know some people like this in your own experience. And they might break with that old pattern of life if they could only forego this insatiable need. Now, God has given us fellowship. Relationships are not altogether bad. Now, some relationships may be like fire and gasoline. You just don't go together well. But I'm, I'm more talking here about the need to have someone of the opposite sex in your life. And they just can't break from that old pattern of life because they tend to draw members of the opposite sex from that old pattern of life. And perpetually, they're sliding back off into that former manner of sin. Now, in that instance, you have something that is good on its face, relationship that is pulling the person back into an old way of life. It's taking a place of priority over one's relationship with God. And there are any number of things that can function this way in our life. Our children can be that way. There, there is a, a growing tide of divorce among middle-aged adults in our culture. Because moms and dads have so much idolized their children to the detriment of their children and the destruction of their marriage that they wake up one day, the kids have moved out, and they don't know the person that they live with any longer. They've made an idol out of something that is unquestionably the gift of God, the blessing of God. God gave us our children, and thank God he did. And they're a great gift from God, but they make a terrible terrible religion. With young people, it can be academics or even athletics. No one loves sports more than your pastor. It's a great pastime. It's good to invest yourself in some physical activity. There are life lessons to be learned there. Great activities, terrible, terrible religions. Idolatry is to love something that may be good in a way that is out of order. Let me give you a second definition. Idolatry is to attribute the work of God to someone or something else. Notice what the people of Israel do here. Aaron brings the calf before them, and what is it that they say? This is the God. This is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. This golden calf brought us up from the land of Egypt. Now that golden calf didn't any more bring the people of Israel up from Egypt than I did. But they had attributed, attributed the blessing of God, the favor of God in their life, to the presence of this idol. They, they saw the outcome, the experience that they'd had, the miracles that they had experienced along the way, the bread, the manna, the quail, all that God had done for them. They attributed to this false God, a God who could not speak and a God who could not save. Thirdly, idolatry is to seek to find what can only be found in God 
in someone or something else to find satisfaction or fulfillment or peace or joy in a fleeting way in the offerings of this petty and passing world. Sex and drugs and various lifestyle decisions are all examples of idolatry in our own Western way. Now, the Bible says that you and I were created in the image of God. I've wrestled with for many years all that that entails, what it means to say that we were made in the image of God. I think the fact that we understand that there's a right and a wrong, is, it's part and parcel of what it means to be made in the image of God. The fact that we are made for communion and fellowship is a part of the reflection of God's image in us. We were made in the image of God to enjoy fellowship with God. We were made to worship. Now, the problem is we are also deeply sinful because of the fall of humanity. We are not just sin sick, we are sin dead. Everything about us is deeply corrupted by the presence of sin in our life. Now, when you put with us, put, put together this innate desire for worship, together with the, the unmistakable consequences of sin in our life, often the product of those two coming together is idolatry. What I want you to understand is that, yes, we were made to worship. Everybody worships. The most militant atheist worships. Usually he worships himself or he worships his system of science. But every man, woman, boy, and girl worships. And this, brothers and sisters, is why even in a society where there are not many statues to which we bow, idolatry is a great big issue. You will make a decision this morning and you make a decision every day of your life who it is that you will worship. You'll worship the God of the Bible, you'll worship yourself, you'll worship Jesus, you'll worship the idols in your heart. That decision is being made every day of our life. And every single sin, every departure from the will of God is the product, it's the result of, it's the consequence of idolatry in our lives. Look back to verse number one. The Bible says, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, Come, make us a God who will go before us. This man Moses, who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. I, I want you to make some notes here, especially in verses 1 through 6, as to why um, idolatry is so deceptive. It, it creeps in. I'm fearful. I've been fearful all week that we get to this passage and you'd say, well, I don't have a Buddha in my home, so I don't have to worry much about the business of idolatry. Make some notes here as to how deceptive idolatry really is. Here, here's the first. Idolatry is sneaky. It's deceptive because it, it, it appeals to our impatience. It's, it's, it's just been 40 days. It's not like Moses was on the mountain for 40 years. By the way, there's a note here as to how quickly we can turn away from right worship to idolatry. They, they have been eating bread from heaven. They have been drinking water from a rock. 
They have experienced the miracle power of God in ways that are beyond our comprehension. I mean, what generation had seen firsthand the power of God in their life like the people of Israel in Moses' generation? And within a span of 40 measly days, they had gone from worshiping the God who descended 40 days ago in a cloud of great glory at Mount Sinai to bowing and dancing about a golden calf. But idolatry appeals to our want for immediate gratification. 40 days, we don't know what happened to Moses, Aaron. Make us a God who can go before us. Give us a God who will be with us, who will answer immediately the needs, the petitions that we bring before him. Now, the irony here is that the golden calf cannot hear. The golden calf cannot speak. The golden calf cannot save. But somehow, in our warped, sin-sick kind of way, we find some kind of immediate gratification in the presence of idols in our life. Now, it's clear to see the way some idols can provide for instant gratification in our experience. Drugs and alcohol and a variety of lifestyle decisions, those kinds of things can provide temporary yet instant gratification. But even in the practice of very real, literal idolatry, there's something that's imparted in that experience. If you find yourself outside of this culture and you actually observe a person bowing to an image, you will note that they arise from that prayerful posture in their place of meditation with a feeling of satisfaction and gratification. There, There is a want for some religious expression that's built into our very nature, a product of the image of God in us. And when we have occasion to actively worship or to actively practice religion somehow in some sick warped way it has an effect of soothing one's guilty conscience idolatry is deceptive and it's cancerous and it's sneaky because it appeals to our impatience there's a second thing here idolatry is deeply religious if you look down to the latter part of verse 4 they said of the God Israel this is your God who brought you up from the land of Egypt. And when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. He made an announcement, there'll be a festival to the Lord tomorrow. And early the next morning, they arose, offered burnt offerings, and presented fellowship offerings. The people sat down to eat and drink, and they got up to play. Idolatry, even Western forms of idolatry, where it's not about an external statue but an internal idol, even those types of idolatry are religious in nature. You you should not be shocked or astonished when you run into people involved in lifestyles that are in complete conflict with what the Word of God teaches, and they feel a deep sense of conviction about their being right in the practice of their sin. This is commonplace. And we're astonished when we run into this. But in reality, it all sort of adds up. Because idolatry is always, always, always a deeply religious kind of experience. It soothes the conscience. It's a deeply held conviction We're dogmatic about the presence of idols in our lives, and we will fiercely defend them. When you begin to deal with the idols in a culture or a person's experience, there will always, invariably, there will be pushback against your opposition to the idol itself. We're going to circle back to that. I want you to notice here, third, that idolatry is against the glory of God. If you're reading carefully and you're remembering our previous studies in the book of Exodus, 
the language of verses 4 through 6 will sound familiar. In verse 5, Aaron saw this. Aaron saw that they affirmed this golden calf as their object of worship, and he built an altar before it and made an announcement there will be a festival to the Lord the next morning, and they arose the next morning, and they sat down to eat and drink, and they arose to play. They have modeled their idolatry after the religious practice God has assigned to them in the worship of the one true and living God. Aaron not only builds the golden calf, but he builds an altar before it. What's happening here is the construction of the anti-ark of the covenant. This is an Old Testament version of anti-Christianity. This this is a system that would rob God of the glory that he and he alone is due. So the idols in your life are not harmless. That's often how we think about them. It's just hurting me. If it's hurting anyone at all, it's harmless. The idols in your life are an affront to the one true and living God who alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. The fourth thing we note in our passage is that idolatry provides a false and temporary sense of satisfaction. When Moses starts down the mountain, Joshua looks to Moses and says, I hear the sound of war in the camp. And Moses replies to him in verse 18, it's not the sound of a victory cry and it's not the sound of a cry of defeat. I hear the sound of singing. They are well pleased with their idolatry. They are satisfied in the moment they are fulfilled by their idolatry. The people dance and sing. Now, all of these factors combine to make idolatry very deceptive and sneaky, sneaky dangerous. You have a real shot of coming in here today with idols in your heart and leaving without ever having acknowledged the presence of those idols in your personal life. Because they are religious in nature, and we are so well satisfied by them, we have an uncanny ability to justify our idolatry. You let someone um, make an idol of their career, and they work 16 hours a day to their own self-destruction and to the detriment of their families and yet feel justified in doing so on the basis of a good work ethic. And it's it's not just that conviction doesn't come, it's that the ego stroke comes. In In our dogmatism and defense of our idols, we feel emboldened, convicted that we should continue on as we've been going. You take your pet sin, whatever that pet sin might be, We have a built-in internal mechanism for rationalizing or justifying our sin, often on the basis of the very factors that we've just described here. For some of you, your idols are so commonplace, they are so ever-present in your life that you're no longer aware that they're even there. This is one of the reasons I encourage people to go on short-term international missions to see the faith actively practiced in different cultures. We desperately, desperately, desperately need to understand more of how much of what we understand to be gospel is no more than Western culture and what of the gospel needs to be better applied in our personal experiences. 
There are idols that are looming, if not within, then just at the door of every heart here this morning that we must rid ourselves of if we are to walk faithfully with Jesus Christ. Idolatry is sneaky, sneaky deceptive. It happens often without our being aware of it happening. But no matter how justified you feel in your idolatry, make no mistake about it. It is an affront to God, a sin that brings about the judgment of God. No matter how justified you feel in your idolatry, your idolatry is not justified. Now notice what they do here. This is the last note here. We'll move to the latter part of our outline. They assign the name of the one true and living God to the golden calf. The golden calf is not referred to here as a little g God or even the Hebrew term for God in generic. Here the very specific name of God is assigned. Translated here, capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. That is the proper name of God in the Old Testament. And they give that name to the golden calf. And I want you to hear me carefully this morning. I have felt like now for 15 years that in the heart of the Bible Belt, the enemy against which I find myself warring most often is not atheism or unbelief in general, but a folk Christianity that exists in our culture that has co-opted the language of the Bible but has nothing to do with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You need to be very, 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 very careful that what you have embraced is the God of the Bible and not our own self-styled religion that bears only the name but lacks the substance. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ it is Christ of the Bible. It is the only begotten Son of God who died on the cross and rose again the third day that has the power to save us from our sins. Now the folk religion will leave you feeling satisfied and fulfilled. You'll have checked all the boxes for religious practice, but at the end of the day you'll have done so to your utter destruction and the judgment of God will be against you. Notice in the latter part of our text, in fact, in what remains of our text, a lengthy, a lengthy discussion as to the great dangers of idolatry. M Moses is informed in verses 7 through 14 of what's happening down the mountain, and he pleads with God, and he does so in an exemplary way. M Moses is a picture of a good mediator. He prays for the people, calls for God's mercy on the people, but then he sees it. It's one thing to hear about sin. It's another thing to see sin. And in verse 15, the Bible says, Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, inscribed front and back. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was God's writing engraved on the tablets. And they heard the sound, and Moses takes note that they're singing below. And in verse 19, as he approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses became enraged. And he threw the tablets out of his hands, smashing them at the base of the mountain. He took the calf they had made, burned it up, and ground it to powder, and scattered the powder over the surface of the water and forced the Israelites to drink the water. Moses asked Aaron, what did these people do to you that you've led them into such a grave sin? Moses says, Aaron, 
By affirming the people in their idolatry, you've done them no favors. Now, in the moment, it won you their approval, and it may have saved your hide. But, but you have sinned against the people by accommodating their idolatry. There's a word here for us. In verse 22, Aaron said, Don't be enraged, my Lord. You know the people are intent on evil. They said to me, make us a God who will go before us because Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I said, whoever has gold, take it off. And they gave it to me and I threw it in the fire and out came the calf. It, 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 can, it can feel as though idolatry creeps up that slowly. It, it can happen in ways. Now, Aaron's a liar. But it, it can happen in ways that make you look back and reflect and think, wow, how did this ever come to pass? In verse 25, the Bible says, Moses saw that the people were out of control, for Aaron had let them get out of control. One of, one of the first great dangers of idolatry is the loss of any moral standard. When you give yourself to idolatry, you'll find yourself out of control. Because what's acceptable, what's permissible is, is not what the Bible prescribes, but what best serves the worship of the idol in our life. If we need to play fast and loose with certain biblical texts, we'll do so in order to be of service to the idol that we've established in our very heart. America didn't get to this place of anything goes because of the implementation of some system of philosophy like moral relativism. America got to this place, and frankly, we as individual people get to a place of being out of control because of the, the presence of idols in our heart. When idolatry enters in, the idol demands mastery over our life. It, it doesn't want to be a part of your life. It wants to hold sway over your life. And it dictates that whatever is necessary to serve the idol must be done. Notice what's said in, in the remainder of verse 25. Moses saw the people were out of control for Aaron and let them get out of control, resulting in weakness before their enemies. When you establish idols in your life, there is something of the favor of God that is lost. You lose the hand of God's providential protection when you compromise the sanctity of your soul in the worship of idols. Now, I don't know how to quantify that or what that always looks like or maybe even how to discuss that in great depth. But I know it to be a reality, and you know it too. You know the sense of distance between yourself and the God of heaven when you've involved yourself in open sin. You know that disconnectedness that comes about when you depart from walking with Jesus and give yourselves over to the things of this world. Israel experiences this firsthand not long from this passage in history. If you were to turn over in your Bibles to the book of Joshua, you'd find Joshua leading the army of Israel into the promised land with great victory. They conquered the city of Jericho, one of the most heavily fortified cities in all of the promised land. The thinking was, if we can defeat Jericho, the rest of these cities will be a piece of cake. They conquered Jericho with the favor of God. They conquered Jericho as God was with them. But just days later, as a product of one man's idolatry, his loving the stuff in the city of Jericho and hiding it in his tent more so than his love for God, 
The army of Israel fell at a small military outpost just miles from the city of Jericho because the hand of God's providential protection had been removed from the nation. When you give yourselves to the worship of anything other than God, you forego the favor we might otherwise enjoy. There's a a third thing here in the latter part of our passage. When you give yourselves over to idolatry, you can anticipate the immediate chastisement of God or the outright judgment of God. Moses stood at the camp's entrance in verse 26, and he called forth, whoever is for the Lord, come to me. The Levites gathered around him. He told them, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Every man fasten his sword to his side. Go back and forth through the camp from entrance to entrance, and each of you kill his brother, his friend, and his neighbor. It sounds like Moses is saying, go and kill indiscriminately. I think there's a touch of hyperbole in what Moses says here in verse 27. There's greater specificity in verse 28 where the Bible says the Levites did as Moses commanded and about 3,000 men fell dead that day among the people. It seems as though they were going through the camp from entrance to entrance and they were cutting down those who were the ring leaders in this move away from the worship of the one true God to the worship of the golden calf. Afterward, Moses said, Today you've been dedicated to the Lord since each man went against his son and his brother and have brought about a blessing on yourselves today. Moses says, You were right in inflicting this judgment against the people. When you engage in idolatry, there is the immediate chastisement of God or the immediate judgment of God in your life. It happens in an instant. In verse 35, the Bible says, And the Lord inflicted a plague on the people for what they did with the calf that Aaron had made. Even now, if, if you'll think, if you'll process what we're looking over here in the text, if you'll, if you'll let your mind drift to your idol of preference, you'll be able to make note of ways that the judgment of God came upon you as a result of your service to that idol. There are obvious examples, perhaps less obvious examples, but there are experiences that match up with the experience of Israel in each of your lives. There is the immediate judgment of God. And, and then here's a fourth thing. Not, not only does idolatry result in, in some immediate act of judgment in our experience, the removal of God's hand of protection and then his actively chastising his children or bringing judgment against those who oppose him, there is the yet to come but imminent judgment of God. Look down to verses 33 and 34. Moses has asked for their forgiveness, and the Lord replies, I will erase whoever has sinned against me from my book. Now go and lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. There's a plague, 3,000 cut down. But judgment is not finished. God says, on the day that I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. And, and God says, whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from my book. That, that language is exceptional. It's extraordinary. It's unique in this early part of the Old Testament where the notion, the concept of the book of life is, is not really a part of the conversation in Israel's history. God says, whoever has sinned against me, I'll erase from my book. Now we have the matter of Moses' mediator to address before we're done. 
Moses is the exemplary mediator. He does everything that you would hope a spiritual leader would do. He goes to God and he prays on behalf of Israel as a nation with great fervency. He, he asks that God would grant them mercy, but the utmost concern of Moses is the glory of his God. And he prays in verses 12 and 13, remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and work this out such that the Egyptians cannot look across the wilderness and say, see, their God only brought them out to kill them in the mountains. The most pressing concern for Moses is not the imminent judgment of God against the people, but the impression that the world might get from the imminent judgment that's coming for the people of God. He prays that God would show them mercy. He prays on the basis of God's promise. When you ask for mercy from God, it's not a bad idea to do so on the basis of God's promise. He says, remember Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Remember the promise you made to us. Now, it's helpful perhaps to note that God was not saying here he was going to break the promise he made with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. In fact, in verse 10 of our, our text, he says, I'm going to destroy them, then I will make you into a great nation. He says, Moses, I'm going to kill everyone else, and I'm starting over with you. Moses says, no, Lord, if there's another way, please let it be. Allow that your anger would relent toward the people. And Moses, by his persistence in prayer, prevails. And God relents in his anger toward the people. It is an amazing thing, an astonishing thing. Moses addresses the people and the judgment comes. 3,000 men are cut down. And Moses comes back to the people noting their sin, promising to go to God yet again on their behalf in prayer. Look to verse 31. In fact, in verse 30, he says, I'm going with this agenda. Listen to what Moses says. You have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. Perhaps some sacrifice, some offering might be made that the wrath of God against you would be satisfied. So Moses goes before God and says, Oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They've made a God of gold for themselves. Now if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, Please erase me from the book you've written. This passage must have been in the Apostle Paul's mind when he says in Romans 9, I have such affection for my own kinsmen, the Israelites. And Lord, if there were a way, I would forego my own salvation that my people Israel might know Jesus, the Son of God. Moses stands ready and willing to give himself as a substitute for the people of God. Of course, it was a price that was far too high for Moses to pay. Moses did not have the capacity to make himself a substitute, nor did he have the ability to give an atoning sacrifice. But on this side of the cross, we have a second Moses, a new Moses, who not only has the power, he has the heart and want to do it. Indeed, he has done it. At the cross, at the cross, at the cross, Jesus makes a sacrifice that atones for our sin, that satisfies the wrath of God against us. Do you see how our appetite is wet for a good and faithful mediator through the work of Moses here? Oh, thank God for Moses. But Moses is small potatoes compared to what Jesus has done for us. Moses wants to be able to perform this sacrifice. He just can't pull it off. 
Moses wants to satisfy the wrath of God against us. He just can't pull it off. Moses would have given himself as a substitutionary sacrifice. He just can't pull it off. Only one man could do that. The only true mediator between God and man, the God-man, Jesus Christ, who dies at the cross in our place to satisfy the wrath of God against us, who is raised again the third day that we might have resurrection life abiding in us. That's who we have in Jesus. That's what we have in Jesus. The highest of Moses' intentions he could not fulfill. But oh, how Jesus could. This is why the book of Hebrews says in chapter 3 that what we have in Jesus is better than Moses. Moses was faithful in the house, the Bible says, but Jesus is the builder of the house. What Moses hoped to be able to deliver to the people, Jesus has delivered in absolute perfection. Jesus cries forth from the cross. It is finished. He brought to completion every hopeful ambition Moses ever thought to have. Aren't you glad for what we have in Jesus? Now, now, it's the resurrection that makes him different from every other God. Jesus is alive. That's why he's different from every other God. He lives. And because he lives, it is incumbent upon us that we would hear and heed what Jesus has to say. What we have in Christ cannot be matched by anything that this world could ever think to afford. What we have in Jesus is invaluable. He and He alone is worthy of our worship and our praise. It is an act of immorality when we give our worship to anyone or anything other than Jesus. He alone is deserving. And I want to invite you this morning to come to him. Do you remember what the text says? It's not just that immediate judgment is coming. There, there, is, there is a yet to come but imminent judgment. God says, on the day when I settle accounts, Israel will give an account for her sin. Brothers and sisters, listen to me carefully. You may feel good about your idolatry. You may soothe your conscience through your idolatry. You may feel good about the religious nature of your idolatrous practices, but the day is coming when God settles account, and you will give an account for your life's accounting. You will pay ultimately for the deeds and misdeeds that you have done. The only safe place on that day is in Jesus my invitation to you this morning is to find your shelter in Jesus, to look to him for grace and for mercy and forgiveness. Come to Christ. Come to Christ.